0: Hey everybody, welcome to the first episode of Let's Read the Bible in 2024. I'm Evan.
1: And I'm Megan.
0: And this is a podcast where we read through the Bible together every year and talk about what we learned along the way. If you would like to follow along, you can download the YouVersion Bible app and look up the Grove Church in Raisville, Washington. You can find our plan there. We also have the plan available on our website, grove.church. And if you're jumping in today, you can start on day one because this is the first episode of the year. So obviously we're going to be on day one. There you yeah. go. Uh, and then if you have any questions, as always, feel free to in, in, uh, email them in to info at grove.church, or you can direct message the Grove Church Facebook page or Instagram page. We would love to answer your questions. Uh, we'll see if we're able to get to them today. Full disclosure, listeners, we're having to do two episodes this week. It's the start of a new It's the start of a new year. Uh, I'm playing a little bit hurt or sick is the more accurate way to say it. But, you know, if you've been listening for the past few weeks, you know, that's just kind of the way I am right now. It's, praying it's for super you. fun. Yeah, I spent... Megan, I spent the holiday break, the Christmas New Year's break, down in California, sunny, sunny, sunny Southern California, and my cough got a little bit better, and then I came back here and then just, I mean, almost threw my back out from coughing, oh, so it's no. the, the stupid cold weather. Ah. All right, well, listeners, you... If you come to the church, you probably know Megan, you've seen her around, you've met her before. If you are one of our beloved listeners who does not attend the Grove Church, you probably don't know who Megan is. And so Megan is uh, on staff at the church. She loves the Bible, particularly she's really into the Old Testament and Hebrew, so don't get her talking about it. <laughs> and. Uh, <laughs> she also runs the dinner church that we have yeah. here at the Grove Church, which is a great place for uh, people who feel more isolated or who wouldn't ever want to come into the, the church building itself. We have a weekly dinner for them where they can hear uh, some worship and a Jesus story and all those different things. So Megan is really great. Uh, I don't know, anything else you want to say about yourself.
1: I'm also Pastor Nick's assistant. True. So that's really fun. Okay. So lots of fun stuff I get to do here at the Grove and I love our church. I've been part of our church for years now and I am so excited to start helping on the podcast.
0: Podcasts. So, yep. Yeah, so Megan will be, there's going to be a rotation of co-hosts is the plan. So Megan is going to be one of them. You'll see, you know, I, I'm not going to spoil it. Let some of them you've heard before. Some of them are going to be new. We'll see as the weeks go on. Also, she's very old fashioned. I've learned just now. Yes. Because while my notes are on an iPad, her notes are, and most of the people are <laughs> iPad or laptop, Megan printed out all of her notes. so <laughs>
1: That's right. You True might, Old Testament fashion here.
0: You might hear the rustling of pages as we go through. Uh, and then just a quick note for how we're going to do the Bible study portion this year. So the way the plan works is every day there's Old Testament reading, there's a New Testament reading, and then sometimes there's... A Psalm or Proverb thrown in there, so we're actually just going to instead of trying to jump through all of it, we're going to do the Old Testament first, even though I think you read it second. But you know, it comes first. That's the way I, I in my it head, sure does, Evan. In my head, it would really bug me to do it second, uh, and then we'll do the yeah. New Testament, and then we'll talk about whatever Psalms and Proverbs that we had for that week. So that's the idea. And with that being said, let's kick off our Bible study this week. All right. Well, we're going to start reading at the very beginning, which is a very good place to start from what I'm told. Uh, the book of Genesis is the first book of the Bible and the word actually means beginning. So there you go. It's fitting and it starts right out, I mean, it starts at the beginning of everything. And the first words of the book are in the beginning, which is how the book got its name. Uh, it's also the first book of the Pentateuch, also called the law or the Torah. Uh, what this is, is the first five books of the Bible that are traditionally held to be written by Moses. Uh, they include the book of Genesis, which is kind of a 30,000 foot view of a lot of history, then it zeroes in on one family. And then Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy tell the story of Israel's deliverance from uh, oppression and slavery in Egypt. Uh, And obviously all of that goes really well. And the people of Israel listen to God all the time and nothing bad ever happens. Not. No, yeah, not. (laughs) Megan Megan knows the story, Uh, but we'll get to that when we get to that. We're going to be... We're going to be in Genesis right now. Like I said, it can be divided into two parts. The first 11 chapters go over literally thousands of years of history very quickly. Uh, You're not going to get to know hardly any of the characters very well. And then we're going to zoom in after that in chapter 12 into a man named Abram, who if you've Mm. been in church for a while, you you know who that is. Oh, yeah. And then we spend the rest of Genesis in his family as well. So we'll talk about Abraham, his son, his grandson, and his great grandson kind of follows out the rest of Genesis. Uh, the creation narrative is where we start. It's one of my favorite, it's one of my favorite narratives in the Bible because mm-hmm. it, it really is the story of God commanding things to exist yep. and then they just obey. Yeah. Uh, the fancy word for that is the divine imperative, which just means the God command. Uh, but I, I love, Ooh. it's a, you know, it's a good it impression. Very your, nice. In, impress your friends at, at cocktail parties. Yeah, bring that if, out at the parties. Um, but it's, it's a, it's a wonderful passage where it just shows the full, Glory of God in in that sense, and so this is this is how the book of Genesis begins. Also, this year, listeners, not that most of you don't care, uh, I'm normally an ESV boy, but this year, oh. you know, this year I'm, I'm going crazy. I'm feel, I'm feeling oh. I'm feeling nuts. Oh. I'm going to I'm going to do NASB this Whoa. year. Whoa! So, oh, Megan's, man. Megan's excited. Oh. It's a little bit more of a uh, it's a little bit more of a literal translation, so it's 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 a little bit harder to read, but I like the way it kind of captures things. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I just you know I felt like going crazy this year, okay. so That's that's what's going to be. Uh, so Genesis chapter one verses one through two, it says, "In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was a formless and desolate emptiness, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters." And so you get this idea in the very beginning. That God is a God, that Yahweh is a God, although we don't he- hear his name yet. That's not until chapter two. But God is a God who brings order out of chaos. And that's kind of what the creation narrative is. It's this formless and desolate emptiness and God is going to bring order to it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Step by step, he issues again, what are called the divine imperatives. And through this, he creates first light. And so he says, let there be light. And there was light on the second day. He creates the heavens on the third day. He creates dry land on the fourth day. He creates the sun, the moon, the stars on the fifth day. He creates the sea creatures and the birds. On the sixth day, he creates all the creatures on the land, including man. So Adam is created at this point. And then on the seventh day, God rests from his creation. When we get into chapter two, that actually gives us a much more detailed account of the creation of man specifically. Uh, Thus, it's a a more intimate story. And this is signaled by the fact that we hear God's name for the first time in this chapter. So in the first chapter, we, and I guess this is just good things to know. In the Old Testament, when you read the name God, so G-O-D, that's usually Elohim. And that's one of God's titles. When you see Lord in all caps, that's Yahweh. So that's the personal name of God. Uh, And I think sometimes, I don't don't know if you thought this, Megan, or if it was, maybe it was just me, but growing up, I always thought that the first time that God reveals His name is the story of Moses. When God, you know, tells Moses, I tell them, I am has sent you. Uh, and I realized last year, or maybe it was the year before, reading through Genesis, that God actually reveals His name really early. They just lose it, <laughs> and we we kind of think of the Israelites living in Egypt as. Uh, they're worshiping God. They're doing really well. They're just being oppressed. But then if you read through, Ezekiel specifically gets after them as well. It talks about the apostasy that was happening in Egypt. It's very heavily implied that they're worshiping other gods and, and they forgot the name. They forgot the name of God as well. So it's kind of interesting that we have it here. Abraham uh, calls God by this name. And then eventually it gets lost during the uh, during the years in Egypt.
1: My my thing about Yahweh is I, I really love the names of God and I've gotten to study them some. But so Yahweh is really interesting because officially we don't know exactly when they probably first True. heard it. Um, but in Exodus 34, uh, Moses is like on the mountain with God and God like proclaims Yahweh for the first time. So we don't know if that's when he first knew it and then and then when Moses recounted the story of Genesis if he then used it. But regardless Yahweh is a cool name because no one really knows exactly its meaning. It's probably a combination of Hebrew words meaning life and like to be. So it could be like the one who always lives or something like that. And then Elohim is interesting because it's actually a plural for it would actually be gods except for God is one. But he's three in one, which we won't go into. But it's really fascinating the way that scripture and the choices that are made with God's either his proper name or Elohim or what have you. So
0: yeah, you kind cool. of you you lose a little bit being translated into English with all of the mm-hmm. different things that are happening with the different right. names. And I guess it's right. a good point. I shouldn't say definitively that mm-hmm. uh, the name of Yahweh is known. That's how I interpret it, I guess, is because yeah. it's pretty it's pretty freely used throughout Genesis in mm-hmm. the way that it's um, in the way it's said. All right. Well, this happens. Uh, God creates man. We get a little bit more detailed explanation of that. Uh, he creates the God- garden of Eden as a home, and then he forms Adam out of the dust of the earth and he breathes life into him. Uh, God commands the man to eat from any tree of the garden with the exception of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So everything else is fair game uh, except for that one particular tree. And then Adam begins to name all of creation. So he's got, he's got his first job. Uh, eventually. God looks and sees that it is not good for man to be alone, uh, which is a very famous verse that's used for young men everywhere. And it's very true. Uh, And so we get this story. This is Genesis chapter two, verses 21 through 25. It says, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept and he took one of his ribs and he closed up his flesh at that place and the lord god fashioned into into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man then the man said at last this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh and the man and his wife were both naked but they were not ashamed so god creates woman for Adam. Uh, it, helper is the, is the word that gets used. That's what the translated word in English is. And Megan has a fun fact about that word.
1: I do. So, okay. The word is ezer, E-Z-E-R. So, ezer um, is the Hebrew word that we usually translate as helper. And helper is not bad. It's pretty accurate. But what's really cool about ezer is it's actually more, it's more like an ally. Um, So helper in the sense of a help that would be more of a deliverer. Um, Every time that God is described as an Ezra in the Old Testament, he is rescuing his people, and it's like a life-changing deliverance. And so you can think of this more like... Eve is being created to be a helper to Adam in the sense of being his ally who has come to help help him have victory um and to provide all kinds of cool things. So it's it's a lot better than just like oh I'm subservient. Um and Ezra is more like a strong uh, a strong ally.
0: And as as any man who is married to a good woman, like I am, uh, (laughs) they can tell you that's a very accurate description of (laughs) of what a wife does. So there you go. So so yeah, listeners, everything is going great. Um, Mm -hmm. Obviously nothing is going to screw that up. So Megan, what happens in chapter three?
1: Okay. So um, yeah, as if, you know, it's all just going to be perfect. We're going to button this up and we're going to go home. Not exactly. Okay. So in Genesis three, we get into the fall of man. Okay. It's a pretty big topic. I guess it changed everything, <laughs> but um, what we have is you know they're in they're in the Garden of Eden and all is well. But then we have we have a new character. Okay, so in Genesis three verse one, I'll read a little bit. It says, um, "I'm reading for the NIV." Evan, if that's okay, hey, but,
0: you know whatever um, you want to do.
1: Okay, um, it says now this serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. Okay, so we have a serpent in the garden. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And of course, stop right there, because that's not what God said. So we see a deception happening immediately with a question that the enemy is asking the woman. So, God didn't say that she couldn't eat from any tree. He said there was one tree, right?
0: Well, it reminds me of the the story of Jesus being tempted in the New Testament because that's yeah. exactly what mm-hmm. Satan does again: is exactly. he takes he takes yep. the word of God yep. and he twists it just a little yep. bit. So, exactly, classic Good. devil. That's a
1: great point there because we will read that in in this section of readings for this week. We'll read in Luke four about the temptation of Jesus, so it applies there anyway. So um, so then what happens is eventually she he argues with her about what God really said. He deceives her. And then, um, and then she, he, he basically makes her think that God's withholding from her, right? Because, uh, she can see, let me see. Um, he says God at verse five, God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. And then verse 6, the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, also desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some, she ate it. She gave some to her husband, Adam, right, who's with her and he eats it. And then verse 7, the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. So here's the thing is that they didn't even know they were they were you know innocent before. They did not understand that that it was not okay to be naked together. And um they lose their innocence and something happens with their eyes, which is super significant. All of a sudden they can see. So they have they have a lot of knowledge but they also have They no longer have innocence because they understand they're naked. They know they need to cover themselves. Um, So this is really when the fall is happening. Now, some people say it's an apple. She ate the apple. It actually probably was not an apple. It might have been a quince or another fruit. It probably wasn't an apple. The scripture just says fruit.
0: Maybe a dragon fruit?
1: Maybe a dragon fruit. Or durian? Or some, I don't know. I mean, maybe that stinky one that you can eat. I don't know. I um, which one that's called yeah but here's here is in verse 8 is really i think very special because it says the man and his wife heard the sound of the lord god as he was walking in the garden of the cool of the day and they hid from the lord god among the trees of the garden and verse 9 but the lord god called to the man where are you and then he answers, Adam says to God, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. So there's sad things and there's good things. So the Lord used to come and walk with them in the cool of the day is what this says. But really, it's um, the breezy time of day. So if you can imagine the image of like, the you know, it's hot in the Middle East, right? They're in this beautiful garden in a sunny day. But as the day starts to cool off, that, that beautiful sort of twilight time, probably the prettiest part of the day, God would come and walk with them and there would be this breeze and they had this beautiful fellowship, but all of a sudden they're not there. So for the first time, they're missing from this daily meeting, right? They're missing and God knows it. And he asks them, where are you? But the thing is, God is all knowing. He knows exactly where they are. He knows what has happened. So the question is, why would God even ask this question? And without going into too long of detail, I think there's a couple probable reasons for this. Um for one uh, for one I think there's a loss of relationship here. You know, they don't they no longer are with God. They're hiding from him and they never had to hide from him before, right? And so all of a sudden they feel like they can't be in God's presence. They know that something has been broken here. So God, I think part of it is maybe a lament for the loss of relationship, but also it's meaningful that God says, "Where are you?" And I think that it it probably brings awareness <laughs> to Adam and Eve. And I think this is this is we can stop and we can talk about the application of this later. But I think that asking all of ourselves where are where am I? You know, where am I in regards to my relationship with God? Where am I really at? And I think there could have been some awareness here. So that's just a couple of probable reasons of what's going on. Um but so then Eve says, you know, the um the serpent is di- God says, "Who told you you were naked?" And Eve says, you know, okay, the serpent deceived me. There's like a discussion about what actually happened and Adam is responsible, Eve responsible, all this different stuff. Um, But ultimately, um, God curses the serpent. Okay, so I'm skipping a little bit here, but um, God says to the serpent in verse 14, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl in your belly. You will eat dust all the days of your life. And then verse 15 is really key. There's a prophecy here. He says, to this is God talking to the serpent, but this is really, really important, okay, in the Bible. So verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Then he goes on to Adam and Eve to talk about some consequences, mainly pain with childbearing, um, her desire for her husband, he will rule over you. And then to Adam, you know, the ground is going to be cursed, he's going to have to work really hard to get fruit out of it and to eat, so the toil and hard work. And then we have um, we have God covering them with garments of skin, which is really cool that he He cared for them and clothed them, even though, you know, they were in sin, but he still He clothed them. Um, and then there's a couple more pronouncements from God. He banishes them from the garden, and he drives them out, and he places an angel with a flaming sword to guard the way to the Tree of Life. So there's a lot of theological things in there. If you have questions, you can ask us. Um, but... The prophecy in verse 15 is important because this is actually ultimately about Jesus because the, the woman's offspring is eventually going to be Jesus, right? The salvation of the world that is going to solve this problem is going to happen when Jesus comes on the scene, which is in this same day of reading, uh, which is cool because in this uh, reading plan, we're going to read about the fall. And on the same day, you're going to read in Luke about the birth of Jesus, which is the answer. Um, and so that, you know, the battle between the enemy and God, and of course, God winning that that final battle in Jesus. But um, so this prophecy is really important because it plays out in the rest of the narrative of Scripture. Scripture
0: so. so moving into chapter four I know we hear about a couple of uh, a couple of brothers Megan what goes on what goes on there?
1: Okay so then okay now you've probably heard the, the names Cain and Abel. these are the first two children of Adam and Eve. okay so Adam and Eve are the first humans and then we have their kids, two of their kids anyway Cain and Abel. This is the first recorded fallout of sin. These guys grow up and eventually they have a couple of different jobs. Cain is a farmer and he is the firstborn. So when he makes offerings to God, which offerings are apparently already a thing because they're mentioned in chapter four, they are from the land's produce. Cain is a farmer. Abel is a shepherd, um, so his are from the animals and he is the secondborn. Now, in in this narrative, we are told uh, that Cain's offering is not acceptable to God. We're not exactly told what the problem is with his offering, but in any case, his offering is not acceptable. But Abel makes an offering that is uh, acceptable. So Cain is angry and jealous, okay? So this is some of the early things that happened because sin has just happened, the fall of man, and I don't know what happened in their growing up years because we don't have that, but what we do know is this this next thing that's happening, the, the author of Genesis, if you will, is choosing to tell us, okay, this is the next thing that's happening is this relational break and brothers who, who become angry and jealous, or one of them does, and then murders the other one. So there's a lot of, uh, you know, relational problems here. There's dysfunction in the family already, um, all because of sin. So, uh, so in verse nine, we have an interesting question, God is asking to Cain, the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? And I think it's interesting. There's another where is question as if God doesn't know. But again, he's confronting Cain with what happened because Cain at this point has risen up in the field and killed Abel out of jealousy. And then Cain says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? So you've probably heard that phrase. That's where this comes from. Um, And so Abel's blood is in the ground, okay? So Cain has murdered his brother, and there's physical blood in the ground. And God says, because of that, the ground is now cursed for you. And God, you know, human life is very important to God. You can see that here. Um, And later on in the biblical narrative, David is not allowed to build God's temple because he has spilled so much blood, even if it's on behalf of God. So God really cares about human life and he tells Cain, now this this ground is full of your brother's blood and so you're going to struggle and you're going to be a fugitive and a wanderer. Cain says, that's too much for me. I can't handle that. God shows him some mercy. He puts a mark on him so that anyone who attacks him and kills him will receive a sevenfold punishment. And then Cain goes away to the land of Nod. The word Nod actually means wandering east of Eden. And then we have some of Cain's lineage here. We don't know where his wife comes from. Okay, that's like a big question, right? Um, But we have um, the beginning of people as nomadic tent dwellers, and even the beginning of musicians, all of which is mentioned in this chapter. And then eventually, a third son is born to Adam and Eve, and they name him Seth. And eventually, Noah and then Jesus will all come from the lineage of Seth. And verse 26 says, people began to call on the name of the Lord. So even before Abraham, we have a possible early Yahwistic religion because people are starting to call on his name. So, yeah. There you be. There you be.
0: So jumping into chapter five, it gives us another mainstay of the Old Testament, and that is, of course, a genealogy, because if there's one thing the ancient Israelites loved, it is recording where (laughs) they came from. Oh, yes. So uh, in this one, we're reminded right off the bat that man has been created in the image of God. So that's right off off the top of the genealogy, which I think is really important because it's setting the stage for this isn't just any other part of creation. And also, even in the midst of the fall, even in the midst of the sin of Cain and Abel that we just read about we still see that humankind is created in the image of God. And that's an important distinction between them and any other form of creation between us and any other form of creation. Uh, And so we go through the generations seeing that there are massive amounts of time between these names. Uh, So at this point, people are living well over 700 years and not having kids until they were over 100. So that's what we're getting. (laughs) And like I said, the first chunk of Genesis, you're going to be going over thousands of years of history, and you're not going to get to know very many people. Uh, A highlight is a man named Enoch. Literally all we have in the Bible on him is that it... Took him that or so that God took him up to heaven at 365 years, and so he and Elijah—spoilers for Elijah—are the only humans that we know of who do not taste death in Scripture. Everyone else, everyone else does. Okay. Uh, the genealogy ends with Noah, who we are told was named for the comfort that he gave to his parents. Uh, in chapter six, we hear about another interesting mystery of the Bible, and this is the Nephilim. Uh, they seem to be. Either the children of fallen angels and humans and the descendants um, or the descendants of Seth and wicked humans, depending on your interpretation. So when it says... The sons of God found the daughters of man to be uh, desirable. I'm going off the top of my head, but I think that's about what the scripture says. Yeah. Uh, the sons of God, you can interpret that as meaning fallen angels. And so this is another fall that happens. And so these would be ba- basically demons and they have children with uh, these human people or they possess people, have children, that sort of thing. And that be- creates the Nephilim or it could be the sons of God are the children of Seth, because we know that the children of Seth are the ones who kind of most hold closely to the Lord. Mm -hmm. uh, And they intermarry with this other group of people who are not worshiping Yahweh. And then they create the Nephilim as well. Uh, Here's my thing. It's really interesting, but it pretty much never comes up again. So it's one of those things where I'm I'm a, I'm a big believer in, Sometimes in the Bible, there's things we wish they went into more detail on, or that it went into more detail on. It doesn't, and so that's just kind of where we're at. Um, we we especially get to those when we get to like the story of David and his mighty men, where it'll just like in passing be like, oh yeah, and then he killed like ten giants, or like there's I forgot which judge it is, but there's one judge where literally it's just. Uh, he defeated X amount of people in a mountain pass by himself and saved Israel. That's it. And then right. just keeps moving <laughs> forward. So sometimes we want more detail. Yeah. We don't get it. Uh, we're not told exactly what the Nephilim are, but there's a kind of some ideas that we could have. Yeah. Uh, well, God has had enough with all of this wickedness, and so we see that for the most part, man has basically fallen completely off a cliff. Yeah, uh, and right. so And God just des- God resolves to destroy all humans and start over. So Noah is chosen by God along with his wife, their three sons, and their wives mm-hmm. uh, to be the remnant of mankind. So this is Noah, his wife, and then Ham, Shem, and Japheth are the three the three kids. Uh, God commands Noah to build an ark, and he gives him exact specifications. This isn't just, "Hey, Noah, build a really big boat." He gives him basically a blueprint. Like, no, this is this is the right. boat I want right. you to build this one. Yep. Uh, and the God then makes a covenant with Noah that he will keep him safe. Uh, the chapter ends with us being told that Noah did everything according to the word of God. So Noah hears it. He's not he's not doubting, or at least he's not doubting very long. Uh, and he's building the ark and he's getting ready to go. And that brings us into chapter seven, which Macon has.
1: All right. So you know what I think is really interesting, Evan, is that we have to remember that Noah had never seen rain. Okay. So scripture, it says that before the flood the earth was watered by like basically i think the ground right so the water would come up and water plants they had, noah had never even seen rain true and so he's supposed to build a boat and people probably thought he was crazy and so very interesting there actually is a replica of the ark that they've created i think it's in is it in tennessee or kentucky kentucky I think. Kentucky, kentucky so um and that's pretty cool so you can you can make a family road trip across the country and go see that if you want um so but anyway chapter 7 is when Noah and his family go into the ark, okay? God tells him to go into the ark because he has found them righteous. He's found Noah righteous. And then, of course, the animals go in two by two, right? Most of us have heard that before. But the animals go into uh, to the ark according to God's decree so that they can be kept alive, so that every species can be kept alive. Um, and so what's interesting is the rain starts to fall Uh, the fountains of the great deep burst forth also. So in my mind, this is probably upper and lower water, but anyway, water everywhere, uh, 40 days and nights. Okay. 40 is something that comes up over and over in scripture as well. 40 days and nights, Noah and his family are inside. And then the Lord shuts him in. Um, I will say when you're, when you're reading scripture, One thing I love to do is stop in these little places where there's these little details about God because part of what we're asking is... You know, why, right? We're asking, hey, what insight about God am I gaining here? And I love uh, verse 16. It's just a mention, but it says, um, then the Lord shut him in. So my question is, why didn't Noah just shut the door? You know, it says, the Lord shut him in. Now I love that. And you can always, you can pray about that yourself, but that's a fun little thing. I love that God covers us like in Genesis 3. He made them animal skins here, he's shutting them in himself. So I get the sense that he's protecting this family, right? So 40 days, the flood keeps coming, the waters increase, basically the waters become so high that everything else drowns and dies. So I'm sorry to tell you, but every living thing on the earth dies because we need a fresh start. Everything is blotted out. The waters are there for 150 days, okay, 150 days. And then at the end of chapter seven, it's basically telling us that everything was wiped out. And that's, the, that's what we have. Then we go into chapter eight. Okay. Now, verse one is interesting. Another part about God. And he says, but God remembered Noah. Okay. So God is remembering Noah. That's very hope giving. Okay. God didn't just forget him because Noah is floating around in this boat okay with a lot of animals it's probably kind of stinky in there right i don't know how they were cleaning this out but you're you know a lot of water here and animals pretty I mean, just throw stuff overboard i yeah, think yeah i think you can just throw stuff overboard i still feel like it's like you need to you need to clean it anyway so uh all the wild animals and livestock are there so god sends a wind over the earth and the waters recede okay Um, the, the ark ends up resting on the, on Mount Ararat, which is probably modern day Turkey. Okay. There is a Mount Ararat in Turkey. And then Noah sends out a raven and then a dove and he finds out that the earth has dried. Okay. The dove brings back an olive leaf, all of which is pretty symbolic. Uh, Noah sees the earth is dry and God tells him to go out and to bring out the living things. And they all leave the ark. So everything, at least Noah and his family and the animals are coming back to the ark. Now, when we get to verse 20, I'm going to read a little bit here. Uh, Noah built an altar to the Lord, and taking some of all the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said, okay, this is an important thing of God. Never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood, and never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. As long as the earth endures seed time and harvest cold and heat summer and winter day and night will never cease so this is actually this actually the beginning of the first of biblical covenants in the bible okay there are five okay there's noah this is the first one happening right now then there's going to be abraham there's going to be sinai which is like moses the children of israel in the wilderness the covenant of david and finally of course the new covenant in jesus which kind of brings them all together the cool thing about biblical covenants they all build on each other and they have certain characteristics, it's an important thing in the Bible, and if you ever want to, I encourage you to do a study of biblical covenants, because God is definitely all about covenants. The the word is kind of an old word. It's a strong, um, like, it's much more than a contract. It's a strong promise, and depending on the the terms of it, you know, there's a lot of things going on. Covenants are binding. They're intergenerational, Breaking a covenant has dire consequences, and a broken covenant requires atonement. So the covenant with Noah is the first, that God will not flood the earth again, the obligation being a basic basic ethical standard for humanity, and the sign being the rainbow. And that brings us into chapter 9.
0: Chapter nine. All right, so after this, Moses and his family begin farming and rebuilding civilization. Uh, Noah plants a vineyard and he makes wine, which he eventually drinks and he gets hammered. And so it gets it gets pretty awkward after that. Uh, and so this is verses twenty through twenty nine. Oh, it says. No. Then Noah began farming and planting a vineyard. Mm -hmm. He drank some of the wine and became drunk and uncovered himself in his tent. Uh Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it on both of their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were turned away so that they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine he knew what his youngest son had done to him. So he said, cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. And he also said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem and may Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and may he live in the the tents of Shem and may Canaan be his servant. Noah lived 350 years after the flood. So all of the days of Noah were 950 years and he died. So yeah, we get that interesting bit of sin, we 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 see that Ham is not the best of the sons, and we also get that with the uh, the genealogy that we're going to get in chapter 10. We see what happens with everyone. So uh, this time is with the chapter 10 genealogy. We see the sons of Noah and their families go their separate ways. Uh, Japheth's sons become the seafaring coastal peoples. Uh, Ham's sons become the Canaanites, among other nations. Uh-oh. And yep, yeah, they're going to be- Canaanites. We don't like Canaanites. Yeah, there's going to be a lot of <laughs> conflict between the Israelites and the Canaanites coming up here in- uh, I guess it'll be a while, but it's going to be really intense when it happens. Uh, and then Shem's sons would eventually become the nomadic tribes of the hill country uh, with, one of the notable, with one notable descendant that we'll bring up in a bit. So there's one okay. descendant of Shem who we get to know a lot in the Old Testament, which brings us into chapter 11, which I believe is chapters 11 and 12 are our final Old Testament okay. chapters.
1: Okay, good job, everybody. You guys are still with us, and we are almost done with some of this Old Testament stuff, okay? There is a lot of wild stories. You can never say the Bible is boring because there's all kinds of things going on here that you're like, now what happened? So anyway, feel free to send those questions. Uh, Genesis 11 is very interesting. We have the Tower of Babel, okay? So um, now... What's happening is all of the world. Okay, Evan mentioned earlier that up the first eleven chapters of Genesis are really like a lot of about nations of the world, and then eventually later on in this chapter we are going to, or maybe it's chapter twelve, but we're gonna we're gonna start zeroing in on the family of Abraham. But first we have to talk about this situation. Okay, it needs to be discussed. So it says in uh, chapters uh, verses one through four. Genesis 11. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. Okay. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. So fun fact, Shinar is in modern day Iraq. Okay. So think about Iraq. Shinar is always associated with ancient Babylon. It is what where ancient Babylon was. Okay. Um, and you can look this up and look at the different Bible places, but um, Babylon comes from in Genesis 10, which Evan just discussed, but there is someone called Nimrod and one of his kingdoms and one of his descendants is Babel. And that's where we get the word Babylon. Okay. So that's kind of where that all comes from.
0: Every year I am <laughs> obligated to share my fun fact about Nimrod. Oh,
1: please do. Yes. Because uh,
0: <laughs> So Nimrod is uh, loosely translated as is, is mighty hunter yeah. or great hunter. Mm-hmm. Yep. But if you ask anyone today, hey, what's a Nimrod? People would say, idiot. And so I always thought that like, okay, well, where's like the, the, the genesis of that. Uh, And I found (laughs) out that literally it was not until the Bugs Bunny cartoons in the 1950s (laughs) and 60s. And it's because Bugs Bunny is calling Elmer Fudd a Nimrod. And when he's saying that, he's what? sarcastically calling him a mighty hunter, but because no one understood like the Yiddish joke that was in there, they <laughs> just assumed it meant idiot. So today, oh. so literally Bugs Bunny uh, changed and more more specifically, I guess, Mel Blank and whoever wrote the episodes uh, changed the way that we view the word Nimrod. So there you go. There's a fun fact. So what
1: you're you. saying is if I was an ancient Israelite, I would actually have understood Bugs Bunny's joke. Yes. Whereas, whereas we, we heathen Westerners do not even understand. Y- you wouldn't have okay. understood
0: the rest okay. of it because it's all in English, but you would have gotten that part okay. of it. I would have
1: gotten that part, Nimrod. Okay, so the next time you call someone a Nimrod, everyone just remember you're really complimenting them as a mighty hunter. I think is is the uh, the point of what we're saying. Um, anyway, so back to the Bible, but it is very interesting about what is going on there and what people used to know. Okay, so the Tower of Babel, though, now everybody on the earth is speaking one language. Okay. But they get this idea in their head, okay? Now they're in Shinar, modern-day Iraq, okay, which is going to be Babylon, which is, we're going to find out in the Bible, Babylon is just never a good thing, okay? It's going to be a lot of problems, and eventually the Babylons are going to take over Israel in the future, and they will lose their country to Babylon. So we don't like Babylon overall. There are reasons why. What's happening here is they are going to decide to build a tower. Okay. So the people build this tower. Okay. Um, verse four says, they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. And then God comes down. He doesn't like it. He doesn't like their their evil plans. Um, And it's interesting because God will scatter them. He will confuse the language so that everyone starts speaking a different language. So, of course, when we say someone's babbling, we're talking about their language. Um, But what's interesting, they're building something called the ziggurat, okay, Z-I-G-G-U-R-A-T, very interesting. You can look one of these up, if you want to. Um, that it does exist today. Now it's not the Tower of Babel, of course, but there is something that you can look up that is an archaeological um, masterpiece. It's called the Ziggurat of Ur. Ziggurat of Ur. You are. You can just Google it. Even Wikipedia has an entry on it. But a ziggurat is really a, a like a massive stone structure. It's got different terraced levels, and at the very top it has this thing, uh, like a temple. And they would expect that in the ancient Near Eastern, like Mesopotamia, they would expect that their god would then come and settle in this top of this thing that they built, and he would dwell there, and so on. And so it's not a good thing because, of course, it's like foreign god worship, but also really because... um, Because the human mission being to subdue and rule the earth, so they need unity for that. But when they undertake that pursuit in a way that's glorifying their own name, the pursuit eventually will lead to violence. And we see that all throughout history, as we know. But when we let God make our names great, we find true unity and all families receive a blessing. So that's kind of some things there. Um, but that's why this is a problem. Cause you're like, well, why does it matter if they build a tower? Like, why would that be, why would that be bad? Yeah. But that's part of what's going on there. So, and when you think of Babylon, it is, Babylon is always about like glorification of man and all these things that can really get us in trouble with, with the things of God. Okay. So that's what's happening in chapter 11. Now, sorry, you, you're going to hear my papers, old fashioned rustling of papers. Okay. Now. Genesis 12, we are going to start reading about, it's eventually going to be Abraham, but right now his name is Abram, okay? Uh, And this is a turning point in scripture, because up until now, it's all these nations and things, but now God's going to focus in on one family, okay? And like I just mentioned, he wants to bless humanity. He wants to rescue the world from what has happened with the break with him, with the fall of man, and he's going to do it through Abram's family, okay? So he calls Abram, I'll read a few verses, okay? This is really important. Most of you have heard that Abraham is like the father of faith, but he is the, um, the ancestor of you know the Jewish people also um the the uh the Arabic people um because he has a couple of kids and we'll read this throughout scripture but the Lord calls him uh he's living in ancient Mesopotamia at the time and in uh, Genesis 12 when it says the Lord had said to Abram Go from your country your people and your father's household to a land I will show you I will make you into a great nation I will bless you I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And so Abraham takes God at his word. He doesn't know this God very well at all, and yet he goes. And so what's interesting here is um, there's a pretty big promise. One is that God is going to make him into a great nation. But Abraham is childless, okay? The end of chapter 11 will tell us that. But he has a wife named Sarai. They couldn't have any kids. And in the ancient Near East, this is especially even more difficult. It's difficult on any level. But back then, it was a big thing of shame. And the word Abram, his name actually means exalted father. So it's really sad that he, for some reason, his wife is barren, and they are childless. Okay, now, eventually, his name will change to Abraham, which means father of a multitude, um, and God will give him that name later. But for now, he doesn't have kids yet. So it's amazing that he's he's actually believing what God says because they, they are barren at this point. Then also, um, it says... God says that all peoples will be blessed through you. That's a pretty big promise, okay? It comes to pass in Jesus later. But it's important to note here that God wants to bless all the nations of the world, not just Israel, but God cares about the salvation of all people, and he's going to accomplish it through human beings. And so this is the beginning of this story. Israel is going to end up being squished between world powers in a narrow, independent land, and everybody who passed through this land would have to basically encounter Yahweh and the truth about the true living God and eventually Jesus. So that's kind of what's going to happen. So Abram obeys God and he goes. At the, At this time, he is 75 years old when he leaves Haran, which is in Mesopotamia. They head south, they go into um, Canaan, which Canaan right now is going to be modern day Israel. At the time though, it's Canaan. Okay. And eventually at the end, Uh, there is a famine at the end of chapter 12, okay? So Abram and his family are in Canaan. There is a famine, so they go to Egypt, okay, because they're really hungry. The famine is severe, and we have a short story about Abram deciding he's going to deceive the people of Egypt. Um, His wife Sarai is very beautiful, okay? And so he's afraid that the Egyptians are going to take her, and, and to do that, they're going to kill him. So he says, just tell them you're my sister, which technically she's in their family somewhere, so that's kind of true. But we end up with this, like, you know, they they lie to Pharaoh. He does take her into his palace. And, um, they, and then the, the Egyptian people are cursed because of it with a plague. And they, they somehow find out that this is because Abram lied to them, and they've taken Sarai. And then they tell him, well, what have you done? So then they make him leave Egypt because the truth comes out. And that's where we end chapter 12.
0: Well, and luckily, you know, that's not... Abraham lying about his wife being a sister. That's not something that's gonna come up again or be like a weird generational oh, sin with the men know. of Abraham. No. Oh
1: or maybe. <laughs>
0: All right. Well we're gonna jump in after that's that wraps up the Old Testament for this week. <clears throat> Sorry, listeners. We're gonna go into the New Testament, but first We do want to take a moment uh, to ask you to leave a five-star review if you haven't done that yet, uh, particularly on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Those are the apps that kind of help us out the most uh, as far as the algorithms go, but it just helps grow the community of people reading the Bible together. We would really appreciate it if you did, if you're thinking of a gift to get for me and Megan after Christmas, you know, you can get us a five-star review. All right, well, let's jump into the New Testament. All right, our uh, our New Testament readings, they begin with the Gospel of Luke. Uh, this is the first of two books written by Luke. Uh, Luke is a companion of Paul. He's a Greek man, so he's not around for any of these stories. But what we can gather from context clues is that he he essentially interviews and collects stories of what happened with Jesus, and he puts them together for a man named Theophilus. Uh, so both the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts, which is titled The Acts of the Apostles, both of, both of these are dedicated to Theophilus at the very beginning. We don't know much about Theophilus, but it's a safe assumption that he was a rich man who was financing these, these writings of Luke. So basically, he wants an orderly account of the life of Jesus and the story of basically the early church. And Luke is like, I'd love to. So there you go. That's what he does. Uh, for his dedications, we can also glean that Luke was, in again, interviewing eyewitnesses and using other sources in order to compile a gospel account of the ministry of Christ. The audience of Luke is primarily to the Greeks. Uh, So you'll notice with certain gospels are written to different audiences. Matthew is very, very Jewish. Like if you're reading through it, it's all about how uh, everything Jesus does connects to the Old Testament. Luke is kind of contextualizing Jesus for the Greek audience. So they're telling a lot of the same stories, but you can see, you know, when they're writing, it's, it's going towards different people. Uh, and then as far as the date it's probably in the early to mid 60s because we know that Acts was written in the mid to late 60s uh the reason that we know that is because spoilers uh Paul dies but acts doesn't include that So we see we see that Paul goes to prison in Rome we end it there uh we know that Paul is executed by Nero not very long after so it seems pretty reasonable to assume that... Luke, Luke didn't just like stop and say, oh, I don't want to talk about Paul dying because he has no problem talking about any of the other apostles who died dying. So it seems what's happening there is that that's literally where it's at. So if Acts was finished in the late 60s then the Gospel of Luke was probably in the early to mid 60s so right before that. Uh Luke chapter 1 begins with his dedication to Theophilus and then it jumps into the story. Uh not of Jesus yet but of his cousin John the Baptist. Uh we meet a priest named Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth they're both older uh and they have lived righteous lives but were unable to have children. This is a theme that we're seeing as far as you know we just talked about this with Abraham and or Abram and Sarai so not not yet Abraham and Sarah. Um while Zechariah is doing a tour of duty in the temple at the temple in Jerusalem, an angel of the Lord appears to him. The angel, whose name we find out is Gabriel, tells Zechariah that he will have a son very soon. Uh, this son is to be named John, and he is to take the Nazarite vow, uh, and he will be a front runner for the Lord. Uh, so Nazarite, that's kind of an interesting one. The most famous Nazarite, I would say in the Bible, or at least the one who's most famous for being a Nazarite is Samson. Uh, And so there's a bunch of different laws and rules. Uh, The most famous one being you can't ever cut your hair. And so Samson and Delilah, he tells Delilah, hey, cut my hair. And it's not like, you know, sometimes as a kid, you read that story and it's like, yeah, God gave him superpowers in his hair. Like, no, that's not the way it works. It's because he's keeping the Nazarite vow and that's him breaking the vow. So that's the idea there. Uh, Other famous Nazarites though, John the Baptist is one. And this one, I don't know why. I never think of him as being a Nazirite, but Samuel, Samuel was a Nazirite as well. So when you think of him going around and anointing Kings, think of a guy with really long dreads who's doing that as well. So yeah, there you be. Uh, so all that happens, Zachariah is understandably very confused and he doubts the word of Gabriel because of this, Zechariah is rendered mute. And so he's unable to speak. Well, Gabriel's a pretty busy guy at this point, and he makes his way to Mary sometimes later who, you know, Mary, mother of Jesus, spoilers for what's coming up. But I think, you know, probably you knew that. Uh, now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent, sorry, I'm reading Luke chapter one, verse 26, uh, was sent from God to a city in Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, greetings favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and was pondering what kind of greeting this was. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God and behold, you will conceive in your womb and you will give birth to a son and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. But Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered, her, said, the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the most high will overshadow you. Also for that reason, also the Holy child will be called the son of God and behold, even your relative Elizabeth herself has conceived a son in her old age. And she was, she who was called infertile is now in her sixth month for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, behold, the Lord's bond servant, uh, may it be done to me according to your word. And then the angel departed from her. So after this Mary travels to see Elizabeth when they meet when they meet John leaps for joy within the womb so John is John gets what's going on which is crazy because he's about 6 months in the womb right he's not even been born yet Uh, Elizabeth recognizes that she is blessed that the mother of the Messiah would visit her. And Mary responds with the poem of praise for the Lord known as the Magnificat. So really beautiful piece of, uh, of poetry there. You don't get a lot of poetry in the new Testament. You get a lot in the old. So I, you know, I love it when you can mix it in there a little bit. Uh, Mary then stays with them for a few months and then returns home. So basically it seems like she splits right around or right before John is born or right after, uh, after some time, John is born and they ask Elizabeth what his name should be. And she says, John, but everyone else is like, well, that's a stupid name. Uh, well, actually they said it wasn't a family name, but you know, I I like, I like to think they just thought like John That's ugly, gross. Uh, so they try and get Zachariah to sign what he wants the name to be. So basically you sign language, Zachariah signals for a tablet, And he writes down, his name is John. Uh, As soon as he writes that, his voice is freed and Zechariah can speak again. Uh, At that point, he gives a poetic prophecy about the coming ministry of Jesus in which his son, John, is going to play a major role. So really beautiful story there. We see John the Baptist is born. uh, Mary conceives Jesus as well. And that's going to bring us into chapter two, where we read about the birth of Christ.
1: Okay, so in Luke chapter two, we have uh, the beginning of it is going to describe um, a decree from the Roman Emperor Caesar Augustus, and so he decided that everybody had to go back to their ancestral family home to be registered. So for Joseph, okay, so Joseph is betrothed to Mary, right, and Joseph is going to be the father of Jesus, and he is of the lineage of King David, so he needs to go to Bethlehem but they currently live in Nazareth. Okay. Now that's about 90 miles away. So they had to travel on, you know, most likely a donkey all the way through the wilderness up to Bethlehem from Nazareth. So not an easy journey. Um, so he goes there with Mary because they, you know, she's expecting Jesus at this time. Um, and then, you know, she gives birth to Jesus, but there's all kinds of beautiful things in Luke chapter two. So, I love Luke 2. It's one of my favorites because there are a lot of details that we don't get in the other gospel narratives. So there are are the shepherds. There is the heavenly host. There is Mary and Joseph and Jesus. There are um, other characters as well. Now, Evan and I did like a series of... radio, a radio show. Oh, true. Yeah. Yeah, And that was fun about some of these Christmas story characters on Spirit 105.3. You can probably find that. But it was really fun to consider this passage with everything going on. So I encourage you to read that slowly, pray through it. There's a lot of good stuff in there um, about what's happening at the birth of Jesus. Okay. Um, so then Jesus ends up ha- having to go to the temple um, to be presented before the Lord. That's according to a Jewish law. As a firstborn son, he needs to go to the temple, which is in Jerusalem, to be presented to the Lord. Okay. So they have to go to Jerusalem to present him, which is in a different location. It, that's about five miles from Bethlehem and a ways away from Nazareth. Anyway, so they have to do that. Um, Now, I love this next section of Luke 2, because there's two people in here named Simeon and Anna, and their story is amazing to me. These are both older people who had lived their whole lives expecting God's deliverance in the form of the Messiah. And of course, we know Jesus is the Messiah, which just means the Savior, you know, that God had promised all through Scripture. They had waited their whole lives. and, And Simeon... It tells us that he really walked with God. He loved the Lord. He knew the Holy Spirit. And God had promised him that he would see the Messiah before he died. And that comes to pass in Luke 2. It's really beautiful what happens here. So the Spirit of God tells him to go to the temple. He finds Jesus. He even prophesies about Jesus to Mary. Um. And anyway, so Evan, did you have something about Simeon? Uh, so my Simeon? thought,
0: well, not with Simeon specifically. My thought was just for the, for the listeners, uh, Messiah and Christ are interchangeable. Uh, so when you read, it's, it's just the Greek rendering of the word. So when you read and they call Jesus the Christ or whatever, you can put Messiah in there as well. So it's just one of those yeah. things where, you know, yeah. I didn't I didn't know that growing up. So it's helpful to, it's helpful to know that when you read through.
1: Yes. Thank you. So when we say Messiah, that's all we mean. It's like this promised savior of the world. But yeah, yeah, definitely. So, okay. So he ends up seeing Jesus. He prophesies about him. And it's very cool because I, I get this picture of this guy who was just waiting every day. Is today going to be the day, you know, looking for the signs and, um, you know, The Bible even says that hope deferred makes the heart sick, but longing fulfilled is a tree of life. And the Messiah had been a long time coming. There was a dark period, you know, before he came, and God's people had been waiting for so long. Even in Advent, we think about that theme of like waiting and hope and expectancy. And so there's a bunch of awe and wonder expressed by Simeon and then by Anna. Anna is an older lady. She's a prophetess, so she also is very close to God, very faithful people, and they both get to see Jesus. So I just, I love that that's included here and that Luke took the time to tell us about that because it's just really meaningful. It gives us hope in our journey. Um, and then at the very end of the chapter, uh, we see a little bit about Jesus's childhood. Luke is the only one to tell us anything about Jesus's childhood. We usually don't hear a lot about that, his growing up years. So it's there's a fun little story about his parents losing him when he stayed behind in Jerusalem. And that's really fun. It gives us uh, encouragement if you're a parent to understand it's okay sometimes because God has always got you covered. Um, but anyway, so, and of course, he's in the temple and he says, I have to be about my father's business and so on. Um, so anyway, so they didn't know... Um, why he said that at the time. But it just proves that Jesus is all about the things of God his whole life. And so eventually he's down to Nazareth with his parents, and he is growing up in obedience to his parents. And Mary is treasuring things about Jesus in her heart, and he's growing up in wisdom and stature in favor with God and man. And then that will bring us to Luke chapter three.
0: Yeah. So in chapter three, we jump forward uh, about 20 years in time, and we go from Jesus back to John. So we're going back and forth a little bit at the very beginning. So at this point, John is essentially fulfilling the role of the Old Testament prophet. Uh, and to be honest, I would kind of call him the last prophet if, if, if I were to kind of give him a label. And then the office of the apostle is kind of something different that comes after Jesus. Uh, he begins by baptizing for repentance of sin, uh, which seems to have gathered some popularity with the Essenes in between the New Testament. Uh, this is what I would really recommend going back, go back to last year and listen to the episode that me and Aaron did on... The first week of the New Testament, we, d- we spent probably like 20 minutes talking about the intertestamental period and stuff that happens because it is kind of weird when you're reading the Old Testament, a bunch of stuff kind of comes out of nowhere because you're like baptism, that's nowhere in the Old Testament or not nowhere, but it's very, very uh, low played in the Old Testament. Uh, all of a sudden the Pharisees and the Sadducees are around like all those different things. So we talk a little bit about about that. So I, I would recommend it. Uh, and then John declares while he's baptizing people with water, uh, someone is coming whose baptism will be with the Holy Spirit. So he's saying that someone greater is on, is on the way. Uh, also, speaking of fulfilling the role of the prophet, he calls out Herod for marrying his brother's wife. So if you know the Old Testament prophets, what they would do is they declare the word of God. And they talk about how the kings were sinning and they needed to stop it. So that's what, that's what John is doing. He's declaring the word of God and he's telling Herod, like, hey, cut it out. Uh, eventually this will lead to Herod locking John in prison. So we are told that that's going to happen, but it doesn't happen at this moment because before that we get this famous passage. And this is in Luke chapter three, verses 21 through 22. Uh, now, when all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized. And while he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him bodily in the form of a dove and a voice came from heaven and said, you are my beloved son in you. I am well pleased. Uh, and Megan brought up earlier in the episode that the idea of, you know, the, the, the title of God in the old Testament Elohim can be plural, It, it but it's our God is one, but there's three persons. Uh, this is a really good demonstration of that, right? This is kind of the most famous passage of what we call the Trinity. Uh, the Trinity as a word is not in the Bible. It's just what we give the idea of God being three in one. And so we see God, the son is Jesus. He's God in the flesh. God, the father is the one who's audibly speaking. And then God, the Holy spirit is descending on Christ like a dove. Uh, and it's funny. I, um, Growing up, I would hear a lot of different explanations of the Trinity. Like you'd get like the shamrock St. Patrick one, which I always thought like, it's kind of weird. Uh, the famous one when I was a kid was an egg. Cause you can be like, well, there's the shell and there's the egg white and the yolk and they're all different, but they're all the egg. Uh, but honestly the best explanation I ever heard for the Trinity is from a, a Christian physicist named Hugh Ross. And the way he said it was, uh, paraphrasing, you just can't understand it. And so he was saying, uh, the, the, the idea he used was imagine if someone lived in two dimensions and then you just took your fingers, you lived in three dimensions and you took your fingers and you put it on there. All they would see is three circles. They would have no idea They no matter how much you explained it, they would not be able to comprehend the idea of it's all connected to your hand. It's all, it's all one thing. There's just no hope of explaining it. And basically the idea is this God exists in a way that we cannot comprehend. Uh, On the other side of eternity, I think maybe we will, maybe that'll be revealed to us. But I think here and now we kind of just have to be okay with saying, I have no idea how that works, but believing it. (laughs) So that's what I say with the Trinity. I don't try and like use an analogy. I just say, yeah, we're not gonna get it. That's just the way it is. God exists in a way that we can't understand. Uh, And then after this in Luke chapter three, we get another genealogy. I think that's three this week or four. I don't know. There's a lot of them. Uh, this one traces, geniuses, Jesus's, uh, G- it traces Jesus's lineage back through Joseph. Uh, so Joseph is his stepfather. Uh, it definitely skips some generations because it's not that long and it gets us all the way back to Adam. So there's there's not like every single person in there, uh, but it establishes importantly that he is descended from both David and Zerubbabel. Uh, so David is kind of the great king of Israel. Uh, he's definitely up there in that, that that top echelon of Kings. And he's definitely the greatest King over a United Israel and Judah. Granted, there's only like three of them, but still he's the, he's the greatest one of those. I guess there's four Rehoboam was King over the United for a little bit, but then he screws it up. Uh, and then Zerubbabel (coughs) is, is the governor of Judah, man. I'm sorry, listeners. I'm just coughing everywhere. Uh, Zerubbabel is the governor of Judea when they come back from exile in Persia. Uh, so when we get to Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, the temple is being rebuilt. Zerubbabel leads that first group of people over into back into Jerusalem. They begin rebuilding some of those things. And Zerubbabel, while he's not the king, he had the right to be king. He, he was in the line of kings. And so Jesus is coming directly from that line. So really cool. We, we see that uh, the way I've heard it said is that Jesus is the greatest prophet, priest and king. And so in this chapter, we're getting a little bit of his lineage as to why he could be called king. Uh, But that does bring us into chapter four, Megan.
1: Okay. Um, One thing I will say I love about the Trinity, though, is that it tells us, I mean, it is so hard to understand, and it's something that theologians will wrestle with forever. We all will. But I will say, I love that God dwells in community, right? That is important, that he he dwells in community. He's always together and and I love that. And so it's important to God. Yeah, go ahead. Well,
0: and I think there's a uh I wish I could remember who said this, but because that just made me think. Sometimes when we hear about the creation story, it can be, and especially when you're talking about it to kids, it could be said, um, like God was lonely and then he created he created humans so that he had someone to be with. Like, no, like God could have mm-hmm. existed without angels, without humans, without anyone, because like you said, he exists in eternal, perfect community. Within himself, and does that make sense? No, <laughs> but that's just the way it is.
1: Yeah. So I think it, it just it just speaks to his his love and his relational nature, you know, for sure. Okay. So Luke chapter four, we have uh, we have Jesus um, having a really interesting experience. This is just before he's about to start his earthly ministry. Okay. So he grew up, and these things have happened. We know a little bit about him, but here. It's going to say, I'm going to read in chapter, uh, verse 1, Luke 4, 1, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, okay, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days, he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. So, this is going to play out in the first part of this chapter, um, another 40-day experience. I told you 40 is an ex- an important time there. Um, but this is really interesting. Now, um, I have been to Israel. Um, I went a year ago, and we went to this wilderness. Okay, so this would be the Judean wilderness, which is like on the in the eastern part of Israel. And it is really stark. It's beautiful in a way, but it is dry, it's brown, and there's nothing there, right? There's nothing that sustains life. If you're out there in the wilderness, It is definitely a time of testing and difficulty. So he's hot every day. There's nobody and nothing around. He's hungry. So he's fasting. And then, and so it tells us he's hungry. So then the devil is going to come to him, um, and he's going to tempt him in three different ways, okay? He's going to tell him, okay, command the stones to become bread. He's going to tell him that he should um, commit idolatry and worship the devil instead of God, because if he does that, then the devil will give him kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he's going to tell him he should throw himself down, that Jesus should throw himself down from the pinnacle of the temple. And an interesting bit about that is at the temple there was a corner of the temple. It was it was like where the trumpeter would stand. And at this corner, um, the trumpeter would announce different things. So he would announce the Sabbath, he would announce holidays. And if you were looking in Israel, of course, without cell phones and modern social media, if you were looking to understand important events occurring, you would look to that corner. And so that's arguably where that where the enemy was trying to tell Jesus, you should go on to this point and you should throw yourself down because people would be looking there for an important announcement. And so uh, anyway, Anyway, so that's just an interesting fact about what the enemy is actually talking about there. Um, And Jesus answers him with... Statements from the Word of God. So each time Jesus has a scripture that is strong enough to combat the temptation of the enemy. Now, Evan mentioned earlier that the enemy is really crafty because some of some of what he's saying is like, well, yeah, you know, you are hungry. You could just command stones to make bread. Why wouldn't you do that? But Jesus always has an answer from the Word of God. Okay, so he defeats the enemy. He is victorious. He does not give in. Okay, and um, and then eventually he is even more powerful because verse uh, verse 14 says Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the spirit and news about him spread through the countryside now this is interesting Jesus chose to live in Galilee, which is another interesting point because he eventually lives in a city called Capernaum, and Galilee is definitely not Nazareth, although he's going to visit Nazareth. But one interesting thing about Galilee is that it's a little bit in the north of Israel. It's a it's a different part than the rest of Israel, and it's sometimes referred to in biblical prophecy as Galilee of the Gentiles, and the, one of the reasons for Jesus living there is it was more like an international area, so international highway type area. And so you could reach a lot more people because you were in a place with more international activity. Nazareth um, is interesting because we know that Jesus is from there. It's his hometown and Nazareth is more secluded. Um, It's more of like a small town and the people there have their, their traditional, you know, traditions, the small town values and so on. And, and they take a lot of pride in being Jewish as, you know, that's not a bad thing, but that's kind of where Jesus grew up. And so it's interesting he chose to live in Galilee. So verse 16 says he went to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went to the synagogue. Now the synagogue, that's just a word that is like the Jewish church, okay? It's called a synagogue. And it's where they would go and have their meetings. And every time they had a meeting, they still do this in their synagogues today, but they read from the Torah, well, they read from the, the Hebrew Bible okay so not just the torah but they read from the hebrew bible and so and somebody always stands up and does this so jesus does this um, in verse 16 he stood up to read and it verse 17 says the scroll of the prophet isaiah was handed to him so he unrolls it and he has a really cool uh, part of isaiah that he chooses to read about god's favor coming okay um, and about you know the anointing the anointed one coming to proclaim good news. And he says, okay, this is fulfilled in your hearing. And at first the people are all excited. They're like, well, that's great. you know, amen, preacher, we got you, you know, good word and everyone's blessed and excited. But then something else really interesting happens is that um, Jesus, he doesn't just leave it at that, okay? So um, he tells them, you know what? You're going to end up telling me, physician, heal yourself, and you will tell me, do in your hometown what we've heard that you did in Capernaum. And then he says, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. And then he actually gives two examples. So Jesus, he gives two examples of people in the Old Testament um, that were not Israelites who received um, God's blessing through prophets coming to them because they deserved that because they were like righteous people who just weren't Israelites. Basically, Jesus is saying this and they get they get really angry. okay, the people in his hometown, they get so angry that what happens is they take him up to this place and I've been to this place where they they try to throw him off a cliff. and it is like a big jagged cliff up there on the like a cliff within the town of Nazareth and they try to throw him off the cliff and now they aren't successful he walks right through verse 30 he walks right through the crowd and goes on his way so god preserves him from getting thrown off a cliff but why are they so angry basically because this is like an indictment against them i mean they're proud to be israelite right especially small town you know we are who we are but you know it's basically an indictment because other people received the blessing of god who honored god and so there's uh, there that's why they became so angry i used to wonder at that so i wanted to explain it because it can be a little bit confusing and then uh, verse 31, on to the end of the chapter, uh, he goes to Capernaum. Okay, so we're back up to Galilee, which is further north. And again, Galilee, more of an international area. He's teaching people. Um, he is delivering people from demons, and he's healing people. He heals many people, including Simon, who becomes Peter, one of his disciples. He's called Simon at that point. But Simon's mother-in-law is healed um, and then, you know, people are bringing people to Jesus and he's healing them. Um, he goes to a solitary place. He says, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom to other towns. And he ends up starting to continue throughout Judea to preach in their synagogues. And this will bring us to chapter five.
0: All right. And in chapter five, we see Jesus call some of his disciples, uh, specifically the story of Simon Peter, who Megan just mentioned. Uh, and <coughs> I love the story of Jesus calling Peter because it's kind of, I get why Peter was annoyed, I guess is what I'm gonna say. So Peter's out fishing, uh, he's not catching anything. And then this guy just shows up and he's like, hey, you know, try casting your nets to the other side of the boat. And if you're a fisherman, you're just like, dude, what are you even talking about? But Peter finally does it. uh, And then he pulls up the nets and it's so much that the boats can barely even contain what's happening. And I love the picture here because you see Simon fall on his face And he says, depart me from, from me, Lord, because I know I'm not worthy. Uh, And to me, I can't help but think of Isaiah six, where that's Isaiah's same reaction to being confronted with the glory of God in that moment. Uh, And sometimes, you know, we don't think of that miracle, I guess, as being like one of the crazy miracles, you know, we just kind of like, oh yeah, there's a bunch of fish appeared. That's cool. Uh, But Peter recognizes what this means. He recognizes who Jesus is in this moment Uh, and in the same way that Isaiah recognize that he was a sinful man and that he needed to repent before the Lord. Peter does the exact same thing. So I I love that connection point there Uh, after this, and this is one thing that you'll notice with the Gospels. A bunch of miracles are just footnotes. Like if they, if they happened with anyone else, it would be a huge story that you would go into a bunch of detail on. Uh, but after this, we just see like, yeah, Jesus heals a man with leprosy and he tells him, hey, don't let anyone know. And that's it. Like, it's just no, it's just no big deal. Yeah. Like, yeah, this guy's a horrible skin disease. Jesus just cures it. It's all good. Uh, and then Jesus is teaching in a house after this, when the roof opens up above him. And a lame man is lowered down to him, which again, think of just like how crazy that would be if you were in the middle of teaching and all of a sudden you just hear like, like the roof opens, all the thatches being torn aside. And then these guys are dropping their friend on a mat. Uh, And so this leads to a miracle, but also a really interesting theological point that Jesus wants to make. So this is Luke chapter five, starting in verse 20. It says, and seeing their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven you. The scribes and the Pharisees began thinking of the implication, saying, who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins except God alone? Uh, the answer there is no one, but that's kind of what Jesus is getting at. Uh, but Jesus, aware of their thoughts, responded and said to them, why are you thinking this way in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you or to say, get up and walk but so that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, get up, pick up your stretcher and go home. And immediately he got up before them and he picked up what he had been lying on and he went home glorifying God. And they were all struck with astonishment and began glorifying God. They were also filled with fear saying, we have seen remarkable things today. So I love this idea, right? Because I think what Jesus is getting at, and this is one of the, this is one of the hints about how Jesus is going to be different than what people were expecting. Um, I, I have a lot of grace for the Pharisees and the people who were alive at the time of Christ, because if you read through the old Testament prophecies about the Messiah, I completely understand how you come away with the idea of warrior king, who's going to deliver Israel, right? Like, like I, I see that and I'm like, yeah, makes total sense. That's what's going to go down. Uh, and so they're they're going to be wrong about that because that's not what Jesus is doing. He's the Messiah. He's saving them. He's saving the world, but it's not physically, it's spiritually. And that's what's happening with this guy, right? There's two ways that this guy needs to be saved. He needs his sins forgiven and he he wants to walk again, and what Jesus is doing is he's showing which one's the the more important one. At least that's a kind of how I'm reading it here. Uh, Jesus starts off by forgiving the man's sins and kind of saying that's the most important one. But if you want the other one, just to show that that I mean what I say, uh, he heals the man and allows him to walk again as well. And the idea there is, if Jesus did not have the authority to forgive sin, then God would not have healed that man. If that if that makes sense. So he's he's using his miracles as a way to show that he truly is who he says he is. So that's a, that's a really important point there. Uh, And then finally to wrap up chapter five, Jesus calls Matthew uh, who was a tax collector. Matthew is so honored. And I I love, uh, there's a show that I really like called the chosen, uh, which is like, I think it's going into the fourth season now. And here's, here's what I'll say. It's a, it's a fictionalized retelling of the gospels. And so they're adding in a bunch of stuff that's not there in the Bible. Um, but it's not like heretical is the way I would describe it. Like they're kind of just adding things in to make it, to make it into a a bigger story is the idea. Um, but I, I love the way that they portray Matthew. Uh, and because Matthew would have been, Matthew was a tax collector, which means he would have been very isolated. Uh, it's, it's hard to imagine a tax collector, having a bunch of friends because all of his Jewish friends would think of him as a betrayer of the nation. And all of his Roman friends would think of him as a subservient person to them. So, so Matthew probably lived very isolated. And all we know about his call is that Jesus says, come and follow me. And Matthew drops everything. It's like, you got it. And so that kind of gives you an idea of where Matthew is, where his headspace is at, that that's like, he, like Peter saw the miracle. He's like, you are the, you are the Christ. He doesn't say that yet, but he he understands what's happening in that moment. All Matthew needs to hear is, Hey, join me. And Matthew's done. And he sells everything and he, he drops it all. So he's so honored by the calling of Christ that he throws a feast at his house. Uh, and for everyone, basically for everyone, right before he leaves his old life behind it and joins Jesus. Uh, while there, some Pharisees decide that they don't like the cut of Jesus's jib because he's eating with a bunch of sinners. And I, I love this line of Jesus because he tells them a doctor does not come for the well, he comes for the sick. And I think there's two things going on there. Number one, Jesus is saying, of course, I'm spending my time with sinners. They're the ones who need me. Uh, but I think the other thing is saying is you don't get that you're sick. Because when Jesus says there's the well and there's the sick, he's not dividing humanity into two groups. We're like, hey, these people don't need my grace, but these people do. No, everyone's sick. Uh, and so the issue isn't that the Pharisees are well and they need to just allowed Jesus to minister to the sick. The issue is that the Pharisees don't realize that they need the grace of God just as much as these sinners and tax collectors and whoever else is is, is at this, this feast that Matthew is throwing. So really important point. I, I love that section. I love just the picture of the way Jesus begins calling his disciples and everything that we see happen. Uh, but that leads us into our last chapter of the New Testament, which Megan has chapter six.
1: Okay, awesome. So Luke chapter 6, our final New Testament for this week's reading. Um, I will tell you, I love what you just mentioned about Jesus and the religious leaders, because you know, they had, they had the law, right? And so Jesus didn't come, scripture says he didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it. And so what he's doing is he's always coming back and saying, and we'll see this here in the beginning of chapter six, he's always coming back to the spirit of the law and what God really intended and why, and what the real intention towards mankind is rather than the little rules that like you have to either break them or, or else. Right. And so it's not that the law is a bad thing. It's just that the true spirit of the law is what was intended that, jesus comes to really fulfill in a beautiful way instead of you know when the pharisees they're constantly getting caught up in all the little rules that they think that they need to be righteous so that's kind of the difference there is like why is it bad if they break the rules right and so here in the beginning of chapter six he's talking about this talks about the sabbath okay now what is the sabbath that's a word that some people it's kind of a weird word right sabbath Um, there's two little short stories in the beginning of chapter six about Jesus and his disciples. They're hungry. Okay. And on the Sabbath, they start picking up some heads of grain and just eating the kernels. So they were just eating the grain out of the field and they get mad about that. And then another thing is that he heals somebody on the Sabbath who was in the synagogue and the Pharisees, the religious leaders are really upset. And so I will say the Sabbath is important, okay? So there it's not like there's no reason to not break the Sabbath. The Sabbath is the seventh day. It is the day of rest. God rested on the seventh day, right, in the creation account, which we read this week. Um, so, and then God establishes it as a sign of the covenant with Israel, with the Sinai covenant in the wilderness. It is a sign to Israel, and it's important as a fourth commandment in the Ten Commandments that they keep the Sabbath day. The Sabbath was – they had come out of Egypt, so it was important because – Then they weren't part of this Egyptian system of bondage and slavery. They got to rest. And it was very unique in ancient Near Eastern uh, uh, context because all of the other ancient Near Near Eastern people were afraid of the seventh day as an evil thing, but God turned it into a good day and blessed it as a day of rest. So it is very important to Israel and for good reason. If you are Jewish in today's world, you celebrate the Sabbath from Friday night until Saturday night. And they still do that in Israel today. And again, not a bad thing. But also, the spirit of it is to is to be there, to, is to be a blessing, right, and to have a relationship with God, and not to get into these little rules that didn't need to be created in the first place. And so, and so they're angry with Jesus because his disciples plucked grain, which they would consider being a version of work, right? And you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. That's why they're upset. And then they're angry with Jesus for healing a man. But I love Jesus's response in verse nine. He says to them, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or or to destroy it, because the whole spirit of it is not that, you know, we're going to let somebody die and suffer because we can't do the work of helping them. No, Jesus is all about the truth of God, which is to love and help people. So that's what he's doing. And he's letting his disciples eat because they're hungry. So that's why that happens. Okay, so then in verse 12, um, he prays all night. Okay, so he goes to, Jesus goes to a mountainside to pray all night. And after that, he selects the his disciples. So he chooses 12 disciples. Okay, and these 12 are really important. They were his closest guys who were with him all the time. To them, he gave, you know, secrets of the kingdom, power, leadership of the church in its infancy. And so those guys are important. They're named there. Um, And then we have he goes down from the mountain, he stands on a level place, he heals some people, um, and everyone's trying to touch him, and then he starts teaching. Okay. So he's teaching his followers. Now this is called the Beatitudes. Okay. And so this is really, really awesome. Um, there's a lot of beautiful statements in here that Jesus makes. And so um, he's stating truth in simple and profound ways. Um, he is debunking a lot of common assumptions about, you know, who really receives God's blessing and favor. Um, there's instruction about loving our enemies, turning the other cheek. I will read just a few to so that we can enjoy them for just a second. But He says, uh, this is verse 20, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. And then there are also, there's more of that. But then there's also woes, you know, because the rich have already received their comfort. And so there's a lot of like opposites going on here And then there's some really um, good instruction about living. Um, But Jesus' teaching is always simple, and it's something that everybody can receive. So there's quite a lot of that. There's warnings about not judging others. Uh, Jesus is using some parables here. Um, I love the parable here um, in verses 39 through uh, 42, because this is the one where, uh, you know, if you're trying to judge someone else, or if you are judging them, It's like you're walking up to them and they've got a tiny speck in their eye, but you've got this two by four in your eye and you're like, hey, let me help you out. Let me go grab this out. The whole time you're the one with the bigger problem and you're trying to help someone else. Really, you're just going to end up hurting them. And that's what judgment, that's like a picture that Jesus painted of judgment. So I love that. Um, He talks about good trees and good fruit, bad trees and bad fruit, wise and foolish builders. And then he ends – the chapter ends with his instruction about hearing his words and putting them into practice being like building your house on a rock so that when there are storms and things, um, you will not be going anywhere because you have security coming from following Jesus. And that's where we end chapter six.
0: And that's where we end our New Testament readings for this week. I do want to talk about – oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. I just can't talk today, Megan. I'm (laughs) – I got this cough, I'm sick, whatever you're going to do. We're going to talk about three Psalms that we're also going to read this week. So just a really quick quick recap. I think a lot of the Psalms are pretty, they're kind of easy to read on your own. You get what's happening. Uh, But Psalm 1 is a celebration of the law, uh, which I always think we need to pause and appreciate the idea of being thankful for the law specifically, because I think when we read God, I, you know, I thank you for your the law of the Lord. We think of the whole Bible, which is we should be grateful for all of it. But David here is specifically grateful for the rules, like he's grateful for the part of the Bible that maybe when we're on our yearly reading plans, that's where we that's where we get stuck, like in the half of Exodus and the Leviticus, Numbers, all of that different stuff. Uh, David is grateful for it, and we're t- he he says that those who delight in the in the law of Yahweh will be like a strong tree planted by flowing water while those who hate God's law will be like chaff that is blown away. So this is idea that the law was a blessing to the ancient Israelites to keep them on the righteous path. And even then the law is a blessing for us today in a different way. It kind of reveals to us our sin and the need that we have for Christ, but we should be thankful for it, which I think is a really beautiful thought. Uh, Psalm 2 celebrates the reign of the kings of Israel and later Judah. Uh, We also see hints of Jesus being the greatest king in Zion, which is Jerusalem. Uh, And then finally, Psalm 3 is a Psalm of David, and it's written while his son Absalom had betrayed him and tried to take his throne. In this Psalm, we see the protection of God being celebrated. So the idea that God keeps David safe, uh, and we get an oft-repeated phrase, which is salvation belongs to the Lord, or in other words, salvation belongs to Yahweh. Uh, It's something that's repeated throughout scripture, and it's kind of, I think there's a few different themes that you could say are basically the themes of the whole Bible. I think that's one of them. The idea that salvation belongs to God, That's, I think, a theme that you could explore in pretty much every single book of the Bible. So I love that. Those are the three Psalms that we'll be reading today. And before we wrap up this week's episode, we want to talk about what we learned today.
1: Okay, so one of my favorite parts about this whole week of reading is actually... It comes from uh, Genesis 3 when we, we talked about the fall of man, but we talked about God looking for them, right? And so I think it's significant that the very first thing that God does, the first thing is that he looks for his people and he starts pursuing them. And when you think of it, this is God's first time of pursuing a person. He never had to before. This is the first time he's pursuing people, but he's been pursuing people throughout history ever since. The whole Bible is, is stories of God pursuing people who who consistently are not faithful to him, and yet he still pursues us in love because he cares about his relationship with us. And we also see it in Jesus, him being born you know, Jesus came to live amongst us so that He could save us and so He could um, He could help us have no barriers between us and God. And so I love that, that that is the theme of Scripture, really, is God pursuing us. And we often think that people, you know, we come and we're seeking God, which is true. It's a good thing to seek God. But remember that He seeks us, you know, and that He is looking for us um, all the time and and wanting to be with us in that relationship. So...
0: No, that's yeah. great. Uh, my big application this week is don't lie about your wife being your sister. <laughs> Just kidding. That's I mean don't do that. But that's not my application this week. Uh, no, I think of coming out of Psalm three. Do we truly believe that God is our protection and that we can run to him in times of trouble? Uh, And it's funny just because I think about my life and how often my instinct is the opposite. Like when times get really hard or times get really rough, my first thought is like, okay, I just need to go like, just, I just need to get away. I just need to go do something else. Uh, When my instinct should be running to God, running, running to him in the midst of trouble. And whether that's trouble caused from the outside world or whether that's trouble that we got ourselves into because we're sinful and that's the way it works. There's never an instance where it's not the right thing to run to God in times of trouble, and I think that that's something that we need to remember. Uh, well, listeners, that does wrap it up for this week's episode of Let's Read the Bible. Uh, we, we we will get to questions here in a set in a couple episodes. This week, we just like I said, we had to do two, so it's it's just really busy. It's a short work week, so we we didn't quite have time to hash all of that out. But th- we will get back to the backlog of questions that we have. We'll keep answering them. And as a reminder. We are a podcast of The Grove Church, but we're not the only resource of The Grove Church. You can find our other resources on our website, grove.church, under the media page. And if this podcast has been a blessing to you and you would like to financially contribute to the ministry of The Grove Church, you can also do that on our website. There's a give button in the upper right-hand corner. Megan, thank you for joining me this week. And everyone out there, have a fantastic week. Thank you so much for listening.